Now let's make our prayer. God, our greatest need is to see our need of you. Help us to feel the need of your continued saviorhood and cry with Job, I am vile. With Peter, I perish. With the publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. What we need this hour is beyond what a mere man can supply. Would you please be gracious to us and make the book live among us? There is in this auditorium a spiritual battle going on for the attention, the minds, and the hearts of those listening. God, would you win the battle? And come through victoriously honored on the other end. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Amen. Revelation tells a story through pictures, through symbols. It's apocalyptic literature. Common for the first readers can be a challenge for us. However, I am teaching a room full of Revelation scholars. This is our 21st sermon in the book. You understand by now the apocalyptic genre. It's symbolic writing designed to unmask. Apocalyptic literature creates pictures in the minds of the readers. You might wonder how, in the first century, nearly illiterate people could understand this book. How could they possibly get it? They didn't have commentaries or online programs or seminaries but they had advantages over us. We are not an image-heavy people in how we learn. We are fact-driven in how we learn. The 21st century mind can cope more easily with letters and narratives than symbols. But visual imagery dominates this book. Revelation is a book to be seen. It's seen with words. These images are evocative. So... We see the people of God, the church, in the book through a variety of symbols. You'll see the church as the candlesticks, as 144,000, as two witnesses, as a pregnant woman, as a great multitude singing, and last week, as a bride. All pictures. We find the same thing this week. The people of God, not as a bride, but as an army. Not wearing a white wedding dress, but wearing camo fatigues. This same pattern is also seen with symbols representing the risen Christ. In the book, we see Jesus as a priest trimming wicks and keeping the candlesticks burning. We also see him as a lamb with a slit throat. We see him as a lion, roaring. And in our text today, we see him as a rider on a white horse. From this point on in the book of Revelation, all the imagery focuses on the second coming of Jesus Christ. From chapter 19 to the end of the book, we find different symbols picturing Jesus' second coming. The book culminates in Jesus, his return. 
He first came in a womb. Now he will come on a horse. He first came as a baby. Now he will come as a conquering king. So let's break the text down into two events. The rider galloping to battle, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. The birds flying to feast, Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 through 21. Two events, the rider galloping to battle, the birds flying to feast. Now, one of the first principles in interpreting this book that we learned was that the text cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So the rider on a white horse meant something to them. The birds feasting meant something to them. The them is the original readers, the seven local churches in Asia Minor. John, first century follower of Christ in prison for his walk with Christ, John receives this vision, pins it, and then sends it to seven local churches. Let's pick up the reading in verse 11. John is speaking, writing, Then I saw heaven opened. Let's pause here. It doesn't open quickly and then shut just to give John a peek. It remains open. It's a door standing open in heaven. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We see clearly here the rider galloping to battle. This would have been a provocative image to these seven churches living in the Roman world. They heard the stories of one of the greatest military commanders in history, Julius Caesar, a hundred years before, who after returning from a great victory in North Africa, entered Rome on a chariot drawn by white stallions. This vision incorporates images of Roman triumph. When any Roman general enjoyed military victory, Upon returning from a campaign, he rode into town on a white horse. The Romans crowded the housetops to gaze upon the hero. A white horse was a universal symbol of victory. Not just with Roman generals, but even in Greek mythology. The conqueror would enter a town on a white horse and following him, his army on black and brown horses. The original readers would have been struck by this fact. Jesus doesn't wait until the battle is over to ride in on a white horse. He rides to the battle on a white horse. He's guaranteeing victory. He's going beyond Greek mythology. He's going beyond the military practices of the Roman world that these seven churches are familiar with. White horses symbolize triumphant military achievement. This is God's warrior messiah. He's riding a terrible white steed. This is not the first time we've seen horses in the book of Revelation. Or the first time we've seen horsemen. In chapter 6, we were introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They were Satan's horsemen. But they've now faded out of the picture. We see only God's horsemen now. He's the full and final horseman. The true and better horseman. Beloved, 
Is this the first time we've ever seen Jesus on a horse? Well, no. On Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, a little mini horse. People laughed at him. Why are you on a pony? That's not how a military conqueror enters a city. What type of foe leader is this? What a joke. They didn't understand. Jesus first came to seek and to save. But he will come again to seek and destroy. Jesus rode that donkey to his grave. He will ride this white war horse to his throne. There are two events in our text. The rider galloping to battle. The birds flying to feast. I'll exposit one event at a time. To properly cover the event, I will ask three questions. One event, three questions. The rider galloping to battle, that's the event. Now the questions. What is his name? What is he wearing? Who is with him? What is his name? Well, there are four names given to him, three of which are publicized and one that remains hidden. Verse 11 told us his name is faithful and true. In contrast to all the disappointments these seven local churches have seen throughout history, they have one ruler who is coming who is faithful and true. And all he is about to do on the white horse is perfectly compatible perfectly compatible with his faithfulness and his truthfulness. Faithful. Should you become a Christian, this may be the sweetest thing about Christ to you. His faithfulness. These are not two different names. This is one name, faithful and true. It's not that these are two qualities that describe Jesus, but rather it's an emphatic way, a double way of saying he's reliable. All that he promised in his first coming, he will deliver in his second coming. He is reliable. Look at the end of verse 13. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. What is his name? One, faithful and true. Two, the word of God. Ha logos theos in the Greek. There is another place in which Jesus is described in this exact same manner. One of the gospel records opens this same way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Church, do you remember what gospel record that was? The gospel of John. Yes, the same human author as here in Revelation. The one on the horse is not a Johnny come lately. He was from the beginning. Verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. What is his name? One, faithful and true. Two, the word of God. Three, king of kings and Lord of lords. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Now, some have speculated that Jesus has, his has this name engraved on his robe and tattooed on his thigh. Did, did Jesus have a tattoo? And it's on his thigh and people saw it. Was Jesus showing a little leg? 
How else are you going to see it on his thigh? G.K. Bill thinks when the wind blew the robe, it revealed the writing on the thigh. I see it another way. On his robe and on his thigh. The word and is an ep-exegetical conjunction. The second phrase is used to help explain the first phrase. On his thigh, that is, where his robe covers. The name is written on that part of the garment that fell over the thigh. The monogram robe draped over the thigh. The universality of his name is emphasized here. He has supremacy over all rulers. He's the kingliest king and the lordliest lord. The end of verse 12. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. What is his name? One, faithful and true. Two, the word of God. Three, king of kings and lord of lords. Four, the unpublicized name. Commentators have wasted a lot of trees stating their guesses on the identity of this name. But it is clear that no one knows but Jesus himself. It's the ineffable name. Too great to be expressed with words. Too marvelous to be known by created beings. There is a sense in which we know Jesus. I mean, there's a sense in which we really know him. But do we know him exhaustively? There is a part of Jesus that will remain a mystery throughout history. What is his name? What is he wearing? We looked at the end of verse 12. Let's look at the beginning of verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He's wearing many crowns. Jesus is on a white horse and he's balancing dozens of crowns on his head. More than a dozen. Unlimited crowns. Innumerable crowns. Church, this is not the first time in the book we've come across someone wearing multiple crowns on their head. We saw Satan the dragon wearing seven crowns. We saw the sea beast wearing ten crowns. They are both guilty of imitation. Claiming crowns that are not theirs. You wear the crown of the place over which you rule. Esther became queen of Persia. She wore the crown of Persia. Jesus rides to battle wearing the crown of every nation. He has all the crowns. There is no region, no locality, no country, no area over which he does not reign. He wears the crown of every place. He alone reigns sovereign. His absolute authority cannot be resisted. And it was this multi-crowned Jesus that inspired Matthew Bridges to pen in 1851 these words. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. They laughed at Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on a miniature horse, claiming to be the king. You're the king? Fine. I'll give you a crown, a crown of thorns. See, he first came wearing a crown of thorns. He will come again wearing the crowns of every nation. 
demonstrating his unlimited rule. He's wearing many crowns. He's also wearing a robe dipped in blood. A robe baptized in blood. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He's covered with blood before the battle even begins. That's because it's his own blood shed for sinners. He's still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. He's our blood-stained warrior, bloody before the battle begins. He's wearing many crowns. He's wearing a robe dipped in blood, and he's wearing a sword. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus only carries one weapon, a sword. A sword was a weapon of conquest. The original readers, they knew and feared the Roman sword. But this sword does not hang from his side like the swords of the Romans. No, it's not attached to his side. It's proceeding from his mouth. Strange place for a sword. Yet this is the only sword my Lord and Master wields. It's the only one he needs. The sword coming out of his mouth speaks of power. At his word, destruction comes. What this must have meant for these persecuted congregations and this persecuted person, John. They had been terrorized by the Roman sword. But Jesus, in a colorful way, says the persecutors will face his sword. Some say the Roman sword was tongue-like in shape. Jesus has a sword where the tongue would be, and it will render judgment. What is his name? What is he wearing? Who is with him? Verse 14. And the armies of heaven... Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. <laughs> the armies of heaven are with him. Scholars agree this is the redeemed of all ages. This is us. This is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Jesus wants the Christians in those seven local churches to realize it may seem like you're outnumbered now. It may seem like you're losing now. But one day, you're going to ride with me. The saints of all ages will ride with Jesus. You will ride with Jesus. In that number will be all those in the church at Ephesus. All those in the church at Smyrna, all those in the church at Thyatira, and all those in Faith Family Church. Jesus tells them and us, you're going to ride with me, church. And you're going to be wearing fine linen, white and pure. White robes were symbols of salvation given to conquerors. Jesus himself clothes us. 
we will wear his righteousness. We wear white. What a scandal of grace. We wear white. But white? Strange way to dress for war, isn't it? Where are the camo fatigues? Where are the military binoculars? Where is the face paint? Who wears white to a battle? And where is our armor? Our weapons? If we're going to ride with Jesus, give us a sword. Now, some of you are reading this and you think, I'm SF. I can hold my own. Jesus, give me some boys and we will ride out. I will be fighting with my Lord and for my Lord. And if we go down, we will go down together. Now, I love that that represents many of the men in our church. You are brave. You are a warrior. But your efforts are not needed. You may spend your days winning battles here, but your expertise is not needed in this battle. The victory over evil is won by our leader alone. He destroys the beast. He destroys the dragon. He kills everyone in the opposing army. There is a reason you don't have a weapon. Because you don't need a weapon. You take no part in the actual battle. Jesus will be out front. He will lead the way. He fights the battle for us and wins the day. We will be there. Doing nothing. You are there to watch and in turn worship. What are we riding? White horses. This is unusual. Typically just the leader enters the town on a white horse and his army enters behind him on black and brown horses. What makes this scene so remarkable is that our bloodied warrior provides the same transportation he has for us. Millions upon millions of white horses galloping into battle. They follow the one with white garments drenched in blood. He's our captain. He's our shield. He's our defender. He's our mighty warrior. Now, on a real basic level, some of you are like, Kyle, I don't like horses. <laughs> I rode a horse once and I fell off. Well, I'm with you. I'm not riding horses in my free time either. But we will be master equestrians on this day. Just to sh share a little secret with you, I, I don't just dislike horses. I dislike all animals. Cats, dogs, when you talk to me like they're humans, I throw up in my mouth. <laughs> the rider galloping to battle, verses 11 through 16. Now the birds flying to feast, verses 17 through 21. Now I'm going to keep the same pattern for this event as I did the last. One event, but I will ask three questions. The birds flying to feast, that's the event. Now the questions. Who's spreading the table? What's on the menu? Is this dinner and a show? 
Who's spreading the table? Or better, who's throwing out the bird seed? Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. The door to heaven is still standing open and John sees a mighty angel standing in the sun. How's he not burning up? Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. This angel is levitating in the sky, perhaps in front of the sun. And because of his great size, eclipsing the sun, he bends down to get closer to the birds in the sky and he says, come to the great supper of God. It is the supper of God because he's the host of the meal. It's the supper of God in the sense that God will provide it. The invitation comes from an angel. The spreading of the table, the spreading of the bird seed comes from the hand of God. The angel invites the birds to come before the battle even begins. And these are not parakeets, hummingbirds, blue jays, red robins, flamingos, and toucans. These are carrion birds who prey on dead flesh, buzzards, vultures. Jesus is already on a white horse. He's already wearing his crowns. And he's already called the cleanup crew. Who's spreading the table? God. What's on the menu? Verse 18. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Here's the menu. Five times flesh. The flesh of Satan's kings, the flesh of Satan's captains, those who rule over thousands, the flesh of Satan's army, the flesh of Satan's horses. The birds have a buffet of people and horses. They dine on flesh, torn flesh, stabbed flesh, seared flesh, bloody flesh. In the Greek, it's clunky, but it says fleshes. Feast on fleshes. On the menu... <laughs> are the enemies of God. Non-Christian. This is not a tactic I'm, I'm using. I, I'm not trying to fear monger you. God help me if I don't warn you. Non-Christian, you are on the plate. You will be eaten by birds. I mean by that, God will destroy you. If you refuse him, he will shed your blood. If you have not turned from your sin, you will be his enemy on that day. Avoid this end by repenting of your sin and believing in the claims of the rider on the white horse. Third question, 
is this dinner and a show? Sarah and I took the kids to Dolly Parton's, um, the, you know Dolly Parton, yeah, she's a theologian. Um, Sarah and I took the kids to Dolly Parton's, the, the stampede in Pigeon Forge. It's dinner and a show. Lots of horses, uh, even a white horse. Fun entertainment, but also good food. Hot, homemade biscuits. Tender, whole, rotisserie chicken. Buttery corn on the cob. Herb-basted potatoes. Flaky apple pastry. Unlimited sweet tea, which is the only tea they will serve in heaven. Dinner and a show is not limited to Pigeon Forge, however. God puts on his own dinner and a show. It's not a dinner and a show for us, however. It's dinner and a show for the birds. Look at what the birds view in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, that's Jesus, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now church, you, you remember this beast that came up out of the sea representing anti-Christian government. The, so you've got here the human governments in league with all the kings of the earth. They, they come out, take their stand. Here, here are, in simplistic terms, the forces of good arrayed against the forces of evil. Verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet. Then you have this extended description of the false prophet before the text finally says this. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The beast that inflicted fire on others suffers from it. The sea beast and the land beast, we walked through all of that earlier in our study. What I want you to see now is the big picture. Revelation is filled with God's enemies making an appearance. They come on the scene in a certain order, and they go off the scene one by one in reverse order. First the red dragon appeared, then the sea beast and the land beast Next, the prostitute of Babylon. What did we see in chapter 17? The prostitute of Babylon exits. What do we see here in chapter 19? The sea beast and the land beast exit. What will we see in chapter 20? The dragon exit. They come on the scene in a certain order and they go off the scene one by one in reverse order. The red dragon wanted to kill the church. The sea beast wanted to persecute the church. The land beast wanted to deceive the church. The harlot wanted to seduce the church. But the rider on the horse protects his church. And he puts them all away. Verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It appears only two prisoners are taken alive, all the others killed. How are they killed? From the sword of Jesus' mouth. 
Now, is this talking about a literal sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus, beloved? No. It's talking about how he destroyed them. He destroyed them with a single word. Isaiah 11, 4 anticipated this. Jesus will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. This is to say, in his word, in a word, he destroyed them. Martin Luther had it right, speaking of Satan and his army, one little word shall fail him. Jesus speaks and the battle is over. One little word failed them all. It was over in the blink of an eye. The victory was so swift and concise, the apocalyptic imagery simply reports the results. This is a battle that's really a non-battle. It's over in seconds. One moment, the armies of the world are there in great numbers, millions upon millions, and then they are gone. Just like that, in the snap of a finger. Do you feel let down? I did, reading the text. It's a bit anticlimactic. <laughs> this epic gathering, and then it's over. This battle is a non-battle. All the physical opposition to Christ, all the intellectual arguments against Christ, all the enemies of Christ are put to death in a millisecond. All the birds were gorged with their flesh. All of Satan's kings, commanders, and champions became dinner. First the show, it was a quick one. Now the dinner, it's a big one. They get the feast they were promised. It's a grisly feast. They gorge themselves on flesh. They are, they are fat birds. Not angry birds, but happy birds. They've seen the show and enjoyed the meal. Now they're just laying around rubbing their bellies. Too fat to fly. See, white horses meant something to them. It was in their culture. And birds eating flesh meant something to them. It was in their Old Testament. Jeremiah 7, And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air. Ezekiel 39, 17, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. That's the exposition. Now it's time for some applications. Four applications to send you home. Application number one. No one can frustrate the battle plan of the rider on the white horse. No one can frustrate the battle plan of the rider on the white horse. This is what Jesus is relaying to these seven local churches. I've got things under control. Chill out, my little local churches. I've got all this plan laid out and it's going to go according to my plan. You can trust me. Stop sweating. Stop stressing. 
Turn off the Roman news. Jesus is saying through this passage, you can trust me. Going into the final battle, you can trust me. How many of you are sports fans? Would you raise your hand? All right, everyone look at the central people here. You've seen college football games. And at the end of the third quarter, all the players put up four fingers saying, we're going into the fourth. That's what John is doing here. He's holding up four fingers. We're going into the fourth. It, it takes a different type of dude to want the ball in the fourth. Now, to switch sports, I haven't trusted anyone in the fourth quarter since Michael Jordan. They all disappoint me. Jesus is saying, I'm reliable. I'm faithful and true. I'm the only one who will have the ball in my hands in the fourth. Now, church, you remember when I told you that Jesus was bloody before the battle began? That's not entirely true. Because the battle didn't begin in chapter 19. The battle began back at Calvary. And you may have been anticipating the ending of this battle, but I want to remind you, the outcome of this battle had already been determined by the cross. The outcome is set even now. And we're just waiting for the seconds to tick off the clock. Application number two. The rider on the white horse first came as gentle and lowly, but he will return as violent and lofty. The rider on the white horse first came as gentle and lowly, but he will return as violent, as gentle and lowly, but he will return as violent and lofty. The same Jesus that came in a womb will come on a horse. Dane Ortland wrote a recent book entitled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. They say it's an instant classic. They've said that about many books in the past. Time will tell. And I am not here to trash the book or make it personal with Dane. I'm simply saying that Jesus is gentle and lowly and Jesus will be violent and lofty. I want to make sure we have a complete picture of Jesus. If you're doing an exposition of Revelation chapter 19, you could never title it Jesus gentle and lowly. In the reverse, if you're doing an exposition on some of the text Dane picks out, you could never title it Jesus Violent and Lofty. We want to make sure we are being faithful to all the texts that speak of Christ's person. If we do a Christology, we need to do a complete Christology, not a partial one. What, what is the prevailing image of Jesus Christ in our culture? I think, by and large, it's a feather-haired Jesus that never says anything to make people mad. Well, he's just a sweet religious teacher. We, we really don't want a bloodied warrior who leaves a battlefield full of dead bodies and then gives the green light for the birds to come and feast. We want a Jesus who loves everybody. 
and not one who kills everybody that doesn't love him. See, sometimes you don't even realize how impacted you are by your soft culture. We want a biblical Jesus, not a cultural Jesus. Now, I'm going to make a generalization here, so prepare yourself. And I know some of you are getting your emails ready right now. Send, send them to me. Daniel Hurd at My Faith Family Church. I will read it. Uh, you know why you want a Jesus who is only gentle and lowly? You know why you want a Jesus who is only gentle and lowly? Because you're unharassed. You're unharassed and you don't need a God of justice. What are you going to tell people in Ukraine who have been raped and beaten and held prisoner? Are you going to tell them Jesus is coming and he's gentle and lowly? He will love your captors and he'll look over their rape of you. No. They need a Jesus who is violent and lofty. One who will come on a white war horse and put their enemies to death. It's never either or. It's always both and. Jesus is gentle and lowly. And he will be violent and lofty. By the way, friends, th this is why you don't do vigilante justice. Don't be drunk on justice. You leave ultimate justice in the hands of God. Application number three. Don't miss God's banquet motif throughout the book of Revelation. Don't miss God's banquet motif throughout the book of Revelation. In Revelation, Jehovah presents us with two meals. Both are in chapter 19. We covered one last week, and we covered the other this week. You have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and here you have the great supper of God. The first meal is around a table. The second meal is on the battlefield. The first meal, there is red meat and red wine. It's color-coded in the goodness of God. And the second meal, there's raw flesh and dripping blood. It's color-coded in the justice of God. In the first meal, the people of God feast. At the second meal, the enemies of God perish. In the first meal, the angels look on. In the second meal, the birds look on. This second meal is an obvious parody of the first. Everyone, everyone will participate in one of two eschatological feasts. Submit to Christ's lordship, you will be at the first. Refuse his lordship, you will be at the second. We have here in our text salvation presented in both a meal and a war. The meal war pattern was first set forth by Jesus and the Lord's table. 
There was a meal, and then he went to war on the cross. Really, this is, this is just Psalm 23. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Application number four. Revelation 19 is an apocalyptic symbol of the last judgment. Revelation 19 is an apocalyptic symbol of the last judgment. You may be saying, yes, Kyle, I know. You've said this repeatedly. You've drilled it into our heads. The single greatest failure among modern scholarship is the neglect of teaching genres. Well, I'm glad you've been listening and doing it with a happy heart. <laughs> Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It is apocalyptic literature, which uses symbols to illustrate truth. It's a vivid way of illustrating what will happen. This is important. Church, this is very important because when you read our beloved John MacArthur and he talks about the growing number of birds migrating from Europe to Africa each year and how that is preparing for this great feast that is coming, I want you to say, oh, John, I love you in spite of some of your crazy speculations about the end times. I've read so many commentaries that mention this. Buzzards in Israel, this is what they say, buzzards in Israel used to produce one chick a year. Now they're producing six or seven chicks per year. And that's all preparation for when the angel calls and they will have enough birds to come down and eat all the flesh of all the non-Christians. Oh my. Kyle, are you saying birds will not eat the flesh of non-believers? I'm saying this is symbolic of what will happen. I'm saying the reality is worse than the symbol. If you do not recognize symbols, then what Jesus will you see in heaven? Him as a lion roaring? Him as a lamb with a slit throat? Him as a priest keeping the candlesticks burning? Him riding a white horse? I don't believe Jesus will have a literal sword coming out of his mouth. This is all picturing the eschatological defeat of evil. The eschaton is here. The final event in history. We've seen the world end five or six times already in Revelation. <laughs> the world can only die in so many ways. I'm saying the reality is worse than the symbol. And for Christians, the reality is more glorious than the symbol. Would you stand with me? Father, it's been a challenging book, but a rewarding book. Something our church needed. You have grown our church through this book. I praise your holy name for that. You have used this book to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. It's been glorious. Don't let it stop, Father. Continue it to the very end. 
This is our plea. Amen. Church, let's sing.